morning and a welcome back to Alger Assembly of God. We do welcome you back to our study in the book of Joshua. So we're taking a look at that book, uh, literally word for word, verse for verse, as we work our way through uh, the book of Joshua. We've seen that God has done some incredible things for the Israelites, rescuing them from the land of Egypt. God had provided the way uh, to bless them in getting them out of Egypt, helped them to cross the Red Sea, brought them into the wilderness, and now God is preparing to bring them to this promised land, this place that he has set aside for them. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks uh, God doing some incredible things in bringing them across the Jordan River, literally splitting it apart so that the water and the, the waves would be basically rolled up and then the rest of it set aside down the river that all of the Israelites would cross on dry ground. Spent a couple weeks looking at many different things that God had challenged them. Don't forget to remember, they took 12 large stones and, and made this memorial of sorts because God wanted them to recall and remember his blessings. Now, let me ask you, how many of you in the past, you have experienced God doing something pretty incredible in your life? That's you. Go ahead and raise your hand. Hopefully there's lots and lots of hands raised. Whether it's through salvation, we say, God has done something incredible by setting me free and, and forgiving me of sin. Or maybe it's a healing. Maybe it's a provision. We've seen God do some incredible things. How many of you, though, would say, but that's not it. I've got more needs in my life. And I'm ready for another one, God. If that's you, go ahead and raise your other hand. Or raise them both. Or raise your neighbor's hand, right? The idea is this. God had done some incredible things in the past in rescuing them from Egypt. God had helped them to cross the Red Sea. God provided for them in the wilderness. And now just recently, God had enabled them to cross the Jordan River miraculously. And yet, they were about to... We're going to find that here in the very next chapter. They were about to engage in their very first battle conquest, the city of Jericho. So they were about to experience an incredible blessing, an incredible breakthrough of God. And yet again, yet again, God is about to prepare them for the breakthrough. So the title of the message this morning is Before a Breakthrough. Maybe you're looking for a breakthrough in your life. You're looking for God to do something incredible in your life. This might be where you are today, before the breakthrough. See, before Jericho, before the walls fall down. Spoiler alert, the walls fall down. Okay. Oh, we get that out. My conscience is clear. You can read about it in the next chapter. But before the walls fall, before that breakthrough, there were some things that God needed to develop yet again. Before Jericho, there were some further preparations that needed to be made 
Before Jericho, there were some principles that needed to be invested in their lives to get ready and prepared for victory. Maybe that's where you sense your life is. Before the, before the breakthrough, before the victory, you feel as if you're in that not-quite-yet stage. Maybe it feels as if God's about to do something. And certainly, as we looked at in chapter 3, as God was preparing for the Jordan River, remember he said to consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord is about to do some incredible things, some amazing things among you. So there was that time of preparation for the amazing. And in much the same way, God is here to pause them, to prepare them for the breakthrough. So this morning, before the breakthrough, let's look at a few principles that God had for the Israelites that I believe God would have for you and I. Before a breakthrough, number one, we are to fear God. Now, we're going to back up. If you're in Joshua chapter 5, because you said, well, he covered everything in chapter 4 last week, that's all right, but back up to the very end of chapter 4. We're going to read that very last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5 to string them together. So Joshua 4 verse 24 reads like this. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now when all the Amorite kings, this is verse 1, west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in what? Fear. So verse 24 says, the Lord is powerful and you might always fear the Lord your God. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says that these opposing individuals, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, for the Israelites, this fear of God was not a terror. It was not cringing in fear. That's what the opposing lands would do would be to cringe for the Israelites and for you and I it is that healthy reverence and honor and respect for God understanding he has the power and the resources to meet the needs of that breakthrough now for these opposing nations there was this literally quake and quiver in their boots kind of fear because they're hearing of what God's doing. But for the Israelites, this was that reverence and honor and respect because of all that God was doing in their lives type of fear. See, the Amorite kings, the Canaanite kings, they'd heard about what God had done. They were no doubt disheartened. Now, their hearing about the news wasn't quite how you and I hear about news today. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in, in our nation and in our society when you literally had to wait until the next morning for a newspaper to figure out what went on in the world the day before. Or you had to wait until 6 o'clock, because that's when the national news was. 
Actually, the local news was at 6, national news at 6.30. So you had to wait until the news to figure out what went on during the day, catch the newspaper in the morning to figure out what went out the day before. Today's day and age, we are extremely connected, are we not? From television, computers, tablets, and cell phones, we are connected every second of every day, and when something happens, somebody's going to write about it, somebody's going to post about it, somebody's going to tweet about it, somebody's going to Instagram about it, and you can find all about it online, right? In fact, when big news happens, whether it's big sporting events or big national events, a host of individuals, from politicians to sports individuals to actors and musicians and personalities, the common individuals, everybody is sharing their thoughts on social media. You can read what somebody else thinks. In fact, some of them will they'll put it live on Facebook or you can watch this live stream. You can even watch somebody commenting as they watch television. It's incredible. You hear about exactly what took place just a split second after it takes place. So definitely a different culture, a different time than what we're seeing about here in Joshua chapter 5. But the Amorite kings, the Canaanite kings, word was traveling fast. They didn't have the social media that we have, but word was traveling fast that God was doing some incredible things for this group of people called the Israelites. I mean, word was out and about. It had been 40 years since God had rescued them and delivered them from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army came behind, and God washed the Red Sea over the army. That word spread. Then they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering because of their disobedience, yet... Let's just pause for a moment. How many of you enjoy camping? We've got a handful of you. How many of you, even if you didn't enjoy camping, you would be willing to try camping for one night if you had a few of the amenities of home? Okay, we've got a handful more hands. In other words, the rest of you say, not even one night, forget it. Can you imagine 40 years wandering in the wilderness no homes, no, nothing that is permanent. It's, it's always wandering, always traveling. You're in tents, and living in tents is pretty much going to be intense. And you're just traveling place to place as God leads and guides and directs you. Forty years of that. And now... God's been taking care of not just a family, but literally a couple million people for 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, with food and water and sustenance. Word's going to spread. And then to top that off, now God's bringing them closer. God brought them across the Jordan River, and he piled the waters up like a heap, and let the rest of the water wash downstream 
instantly made it dry so two million people could cross a muddy river, except it wasn't muddy, they crossed on dry ground. You hear about and think about all of that, and that news spreads. Maybe not quite the instant as today's day and age, but that news is going to spread. And these Amorites and these Canaanites, they are hearing about what God's doing, and they're hearing about this people that God seems to have his hand upon, and they seem to keep getting closer and closer and closer, and they're getting more and more and more scared and fearful. They're fearful of what God's doing. The Israelites here are to have a healthy, reverent, respectful fear of the Lord. A fear that honors Him and appreciates His blessings. We spent the last couple of weeks looking at the thought, don't forget to remember. And all of chapter 4, we looked at just a, a handful of things that God wanted us to remember. So God's saying, honor and fear and reverence and respect me. Let's not move on and become forgetful. Let's not move on and just lose sight and lose track of what God had done, but be ready for what God has in our future. Those previous victories, those previous times when God has moved and blessed, don't they give some confidence and encouragement to know God did it then, God can do it now, God can still do it tomorrow. I've got to have this healthy view of and fear of God. Our confidence in God comes from victories, and, well, victories come by overcoming the challenges that we face. We do that with the power of God and His presence. So first of all, let's make sure that we honor and reverence and respect and fear in a good way our God because it's truly him that is going to do the blessing. It is him that's about ready to intervene in our situations. But not just fear God. Secondly, let us make sure that we yield to God. So chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives, invade, attack, and crush the enemy. I'm seeing some faces here. Isn't that what your Bible says? Doesn't read that way? I'm reading from the, I thought it should be written this way version. That's not how yours says? Okay, let's try it again. All right, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Why did God say? Make flint knives. Okay, we get that part. They're about ready to come in and conquer and, and do battle. But he said, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites. God instructs them to do something that would cause them to wait. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we're looking at strategy now, does it? I mean, the best time to attack would literally be yesterday, right? I mean, the sooner the better. There's all kinds of battle phrases and, and time 
uh, time-worn phrases. Strike while the iron is hot. All of these things which say that we just ought to keep going. We might call it momentum. God had some pretty incredible momentum. 40 years in the wilderness. Now he's getting ready to bring them into the promised land. He helps them to cross the Jordan on dry ground. All two million cross. Now it's just time to go, go, go. And God says, no, no, no. He says, make some flint knives, but the purpose is not for battle. The purpose is for circumcision. See, God wants to work through us, but sometimes he first has to work in us as we yield. So God instructed them to make flint knives for circumcision. All right, what did Joshua do? Did he follow through? Verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, we're not going to get into details, but circumcision certainly is that cutting away of the piece of flesh of a very sensitive part of a man's anatomy. And we're going to leave it there. But God said, make flint knives and do this act of cutting. Do this act of circumcision. And Joshua followed through and did that. Now, circumcision... In biblical days, this was not a medical process. This was not a health process. This was literally for a spiritual process and a spiritual purpose. You see, this act of cutting away that tiny portion of the body, in a sense, was marking, committing his people, the Israelites, to him. In fact, it would be the, the precursor in, in the New Testament. The New Testament refers back to that when it speaks about water baptism. Circumcision in the Old Testament, circumcision in Bible days, it was that exterior, visible form of what God had done on the inside of drawing them to himself as his people. That's, that's basically what water baptism is. It's something that people can see on the outside. It's visible, but it symbolizes and it signifies what God's already done in our hearts, which is to cleanse and forgive us of our sins. We identify, I'm a part of God's family. I'm a believer. I am a Christian, and I'm going to obey and take that step of water baptism so that others might be able to see. Same thing here with circumcision. It identified them as God's people. It's that outward mark, that outward reminder of that inward change. Now, why did he do that? And why did he do that now? Verse 4. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. Verse 6, the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. 
For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So this was something God had instituted. God had begun this process of asking them to be circumcised. And yet, in literally 40 years now of wandering in the wilderness, they had not done so. They had lived in disobedience. Because of that disobedience, when they disobeyed God in the wilderness, when they disobeyed God when they came to spy out the land, he said it's going to be 40 years of wandering. And God waited until all of those individuals, those faithless individuals, had died off. Now this new generation was present And none of them had experienced this act of commitment, this act of separating themselves unto the Lord. And God's saying, I want you to have this commitment. Yield to me. See, we've got to yield and surrender completely. You see, you can't go halfway in a circumcision. Either you're circumcised or you're not. You don't go halfway. He's desiring that they would yield. He's desiring that they would obey. He's desiring that they would commit. He's desiring that there would be this mark upon their lives that says, I am God's. I am his. He's my God. He's my master. He's my leader. I'm obeying. I'm following. I'm yielded to him. And when we think of yielding, we often think of that yield sign, which we tend to think of as suggestions. Some of you crazy drivers out there, you just think of that as a suggestion. Oh, look at that pretty yellow sign. It's a triangle. I know my shapes. You know, we see those when you're merging with traffic or you're merging onto a highway, and there's a yield sign, and it's not just there to decorate the highway, Right? There's a purpose. The purpose is to yield to someone who's driving on the highway at 55 or 60 or 65 or 70 or 105 miles per hour. They are faster. In many cases, they're a whole lot larger in their vehicles than you. So when you merge onto the highway, you are yielding to a faster higher, more powerful authority, if you would, and you're working your way in accordingly. When we yield, we surrender our lives to a higher, more powerful authority, recognizing he knows it all, recognizing he's got the answers, recognizing he's got the power. We yield, we submit We surrender, not sort of, but wholeheartedly to him. You see, there's there's that question. There's that challenge. Because in the songs we sing, we sing, I surrender all. Do we really mean that? If we were singing honest hymns, we'd sing, I surrender all. Only the things that I really feel like doing. 
only the things that are easy, only the things that I'm already doing. If we're being honest, sometimes that's our heart of reality. This wasn't a suggestion to say, think about the act of circumcision. The instruction was to make flint knives and circumcise wholeheartedly go through with this commitment and identification with me. It's yielding completely to God. It's not half-hearted devotion. It's not half-hearted commitment to go all the way with God, surrendering to Him. See, Israel was removing this small portion of flesh as a sign of their commitment, what would it be for you and I? Not so much the act of circumcision, but what about the act of surrender or yielding? What does it take for you and I to yield or surrender all of us to God? Are there things that we're kind of holding back from God about? Well, God, I surrender all of part of me. God, I'll surrender all of my finances, well, except for the things that I don't want to surrender to you, which is mostly everything, God. I know you teach about tithing, God, but yeah, that's for other people. God, I I know that there's the opportunity of blessing through offerings, but God, I'm, I'm sure you meant that for other people. God, I know you've talked about in your word, loving others and loving our neighbor as ourselves, but, but God, you don't have my neighbor, so I'm sure that doesn't apply to me. So God, I surrender most of me most of the time. And we feel pretty good about whatever that might be. Because for each and every one of us, there's things that we struggle with surrendering. Maybe you've got a real good handle on something. You've got a real good handle on the giving aspect, but you struggle in the love aspect. Or you're good in the love aspect, but you struggle in the honor and commitment aspect. Whatever the case is, God's desiring this wholehearted commitment. We're wanting to see this breakthrough. We're wanting to see God move in our hearts and our lives and our families. And we're saying, God, I surrender. The question is, are we surrendering our all? And they were called to Yield completely, surrender to him. See, God doesn't beg us to yield. God doesn't suggest that we yield. God doesn't bribe us to yield. He simply asks that we yield. He doesn't beg us, oh, would you please, please, please surrender. He simply asks us, calls us to obey and surrender and yield to yield and surrender all of us, whether that's physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, financial, all of us surrendered to him. Now, it'd be easy if God never asked us to do anything hard, right? If God never asked us to sacrifice anything difficult, it'd be easy to surrender, Sometimes we are called to sacrifice. Sometimes we are asked 
to obey by doing something difficult or by doing something we don't understand or by doing something we don't feel we can do. Then we kind of find out whether we're truly faithful, committed, surrendered, right? What might God be asking you and I to yield? Are there hindrances in our lives, habits, pastimes, things we are devoted to that are coming between our relationship and God? Before the breakthrough comes, God's saying, devote yourself entirely to me, yield to me. So have this healthy fear, honor, and respect for God. Yield to God. Thirdly, trust God. Trust in God. Verse 8 and 9 reads like this. After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. We've got to trust God. We've got to trust his will, his plan, his way, most of all, his timing. We, we talked about it just a little bit earlier. Common sense, momentum says we've got to go. We've got to attack. They're fearful. They're scared. We can just roll right through everybody. God brought us across the Jordan River. We've got the momentum. If you're a sports fan, you hear that word talked about a lot. Almost every game, almost every series, almost every final, someone's talking about, well, who's got the momentum? Who's been winning a bunch before the playoffs? Or who's got the momentum in this game? What they typically say is when you've got the momentum, keep going. Pedal to the metal. Keep just pushing forward. So God brought them across the Jordan River. This was on the 10th day of the first month. And then God said, stop. Make some knives. Do the act of circumcision. Yield and surrender completely to me. This is something that had not been done in years and years and years. And by the way, we're going to wait a few days until all the guys are healed up. They didn't have the quite the technology that we might have today. So it says in God's word that they would remain in camp until they were healed. Keep in mind, here's the Israelites who had crossed the Jordan River on their way to Jericho. They're only a handful of miles from Jericho. And God's saying to the entire nation, all of the men of fighting age, every, everyone, they are going to be circumcised. As a result of that flint knife coming in contact with their body in a very sensitive area, they're going to be out of commission for a few days. They would literally be sitting ducks for the nations around them. So instead of acting, instead of going, God says, stay, be circumcised, and heal. It doesn't make sense except that it's God and we are to trust in him. Trust in him. Trust in his plan. Trust in his timing. 
we've got to trust that he has got everything in our lives, that breakthrough that's on its way, he's got that figured out. Now, sometimes after the victory, sometimes we are tested. Sometimes God allows some challenges to come. Not that God sends those things, but God can use those sometimes to help us, to grow us. But God's wanting to make sure they are not depending on self. This is going to be trust in Him. There's no way that they can take credit on their own. After this process is done, God's going to lead them forward, but it's God that's going to get the glory. They've got to trust Him wholeheartedly. Trust many times is hard for you and I. Understand this, though. God's not going to ask anything more unreasonable of you and I that God had asked of them. We say, but God, it's just not fair because I'm going through whatever. Fill in the blank. And we go through some tough times. And hard times and tough times come. We understand that. Can you imagine having a nation of individuals and saying, don't attack, I've just done this mighty blessing for you, pause and hang out for several days while you heal, then we'll talk about a battle plan. That's a high-level trust ask. Things that maybe God asks of you and asks of me require that we trust wholeheartedly count upon him. So that, that aspect of obeying and yielding and trusting, it's that old phrase that many preachers have said, God can't be Lord at all until he is Lord of all. We say, God, I want you to be Lord in my life. That means number one above all else. Are we willing to surrender and then trust God after we've surrendered? Both of those go hand in hand, right? Now, we're, we're not there yet. I know my, my son had his birthday today. He's four, shadow. So he's got 12 more years until he can drive. But Autumn's birthday is coming up later this month. And she'll be turning 11, which means she's only got about five more years. And many of you have, have been through that process before. When you allow your child to drive, you are yielding your vehicle. Doesn't mean you're giving it to them, but you're at least yielding and allowing them to drive and then trusting that they will drive safely. And both of those go hand in hand. It's the yielding and allowing them to drive, but it goes further than that. It's trusting that they will be able to do so. Now, I know it's a natural part of parenthood and growing up, but there's a pretty big difference between that and what we're talking about. Yielding and trusting a teenager is one thing. As we teach and grow and, and equip but yielding and trusting an almighty, all-loving, all-powerful, wants the best in our life God is entirely different. That almighty God won't get any speeding tickets 
or back into a mailbox or get into a fender bender. That almighty God loves and cares for you and for me. Do we have a healthy fear and honor and respect? Are we able to yield completely to him and then trust in him? Finally this morning, as we prepare for that breakthrough, it's time to celebrate God. Chapter 5, verse 10 reads like this. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. See, for the Israelites, first of all, they celebrated God by looking back. They looked back at this act called the Passover. They remembered the past, and they kept this feast of the Passover. Scholars would look to the Word of God and see they first observed it while they were in Egypt. If you remember, that was that 10th plague. The death of the firstborn as God was sending plague upon plague, 10 plagues to the Egyptians. The 10th and final plague was the death of the firstborn. And the instructions to the Israelites were to take a pure and without blemish or defect lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts of your home, and when the angel came and saw that blood, it would pass over. So those Israelites were spared, rescued, and saved by the blood of a lamb. You can get a little more excited about that because you understand that as we go to the New Testament, Jesus Christ became that lamb, that perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. And you and I are delivered and rescued and saved because of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so for the Israelites, they were looking back to the Passover. And again, that's for you and I as we look back. Communion is that time of remembrance. We look back and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We celebrate what he has done for us. Not just Easter, but every day. And for the Israelites, they were looking back and they were celebrating what God had done. They first celebrated it in Egypt. Second, they celebrated it at Mount Sinai. This is the third opportunity of doing that. It had been nearly 40 years since they had celebrated the Passover. Just as the Israelites were looking back, celebrating what God had done, being reminded of his blessings, being reminded of their salvation, you and I can look back and we can remember what God has done in our lives. His blessings, his forgiveness, his salvation, his miracles, his provision. We celebrate God and we look back at what he's done but we don't just celebrate by looking back. We also celebrate by not looking back. 
You've got some puzzled faces, and that's understandable. We look back, but we also don't look back. See, they look back at what God had done for the Passover, the tenth day of the month God brought them into uh, to pass the Jordan. God asked that they would be circumcised and heal. So between the tenth and the fourteenth day, that's what took place. Here on the fourteenth day, they celebrated the Passover. It says that very next day, which would be the fifteenth day of the month, it says they ate some of the produce of the land. But what happened on the very next day, the 16th? It says manna stopped. Room service was no more. Why? Because what God had provided was now enough for them. They were in the wilderness, they were out and about, and God had provided manna throughout this 40 years of wandering. Six days a week. God provided manna. The sixth day was enough for the last two days. But remember, when God provided manna, they were looking back to Egypt. Oh, we had it so good in, in Egypt. All the leeks and onions and garlic and stuff we could, we could just want. God blessed them with manna, but they were looking back at what other stuff they used to have. Now, God had provided them with the grain of the land. All these individuals who were fearful of their coming had left, had fled, and they're able to eat of the produce of the land. And God ceased the manna. The danger is don't look back now to the manna and say, oh, I sure wish I had the manna. We've got to trust God for his blessings and his provision in our lives. Look forward to what God has in store for you. Look forward to that breakthrough. Look forward to what God is about to bless. So we celebrate God. We look back at what he's done, but we don't look backward at where we've been. We say, God, I'm ready for what you have in my life. I'm ready for this breakthrough. I'm desiring to honor and to fear and to reverence and to respect you and your name. I'm desiring to yield wholeheartedly to you, God. I'm desiring to trust and commit my life to you. And I'm desiring to honor and to celebrate you as I get ready for whatever that next chapter, for whatever you have in store for me next. Are you ready? 